from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, it's official. Tim Spreen is flying solo behind the audio board uh, tonight. Although David Gaskin, my uh, technical producer, is somewhere in the building sort of supervising. Uh, but David, uh, this is his last show as my technical producer, and uh, I think he has a couple of morning shifts early next week, and then he is off to Kathmandu. So that's uh, technical producer number three and counting. You're gonna, you're not gonna leave me, are you, Tim? After like a year, you're you're in this for the long haul. Good, he's giving me the thumbs up. All right, so out with the old and in with the new. Uh, but all the best to uh, to David Gaskin, Kathmandu. Wasn't there a Bob Seger tune about Kathmandu? I think so. Maybe we should play that at some point. Can we? Is that possible? Do we have Cat a uh, Bob Seger at AM seven forty? I doubt it. Oh well, it was a th- hey. Welcome to the broadcast, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, good to have you aboard. And um, uh, I want to say, you know, to the doctor, George Unescu, he is a doctor, the uh, the host of the uh, the program that precedes this Big Band Sunday night here on the all-new AM740, safe trip home as he travels north up to Simcoe County. And uh, I also want to say a big hello to three new affiliates that are joining the Conspiracy Show. Uh, let's see. We've got WGHQ AM920 in Kingston, New York. WGHQ AM920 Kingston, New York. WBNR AM1260 in Beacon, New York. And finally, a big hello, how are you to WLNA AM 1420 in Peekskill, New York. Uh, those are all, if um, uh, I recall correctly, are in the Hudson Valley. So the conspiracy show has just about got the Hudson Valley covered. So welcome, welcome uh, to all three of you. Good to have you aboard. Now, uh, we're going to talk about an organization you may have never heard of, but they're out there. They number somewhere 30 to 40,000. They meet annually. And essentially, they, uh, they discuss how best to create global governance. They're called the World Federalist Movement. Some of them may be well-intended. Most of them may be. Some of you, and myself included, don't necessarily want world government. Uh, neither does my next guest, and he's here to tell us what goes on at the World Federalist Movement meetings and what we need to be concerned about. Carl Teichrib is chief editor at Forcing Change. He's an expert on globalization and its many subtopics. He's been an accredited observer and or participant in a variety of international events, including the United Nations Millennium Forum, the UN Third World Urban Forum, Global Governance 2002, and other major global conferences. Carl Teichrip, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Hey, I'm doing well. It's good to be with you. The World Federalist Movement. Now, they are uh, they're out of New York, are they not? Yes, that's where the international headquarters is located. Uh, they have been around, Richard, for quite some sometimes 65 years to be exact so the organization has some roots it has a foundation already and and my understanding is that they essentially uh, formed uh in the wake of the formation of the united nations because they didn't think the united nations was uh was going to get the job done in other other words the un was was a little too close to the league of nations too similar to the league of nations which had failed for example to prevent world war ii 
yes, but there's something more than that. Actually, the idea of world federalism predates the United Nations. Indeed, you actually see world federalists at work during World War II, in even the earlier days of World War II. And, and actually, Richard, you can trace back the movement, not necessarily the organized movement, but the movement towards world federalism back to the days of World War I. Uh, actually, I have in my hand right here a book by Nicholas Murray Butler, who was the president of Columbia University. And in 1914, he was calling for a federated international government one that would have its own military force, its own judicial system, and that would become literally an effective world government. And so it wasn't necessarily that it was about the United Nations. However, world federalists did play a role, and actually a significant role, in helping to formulate the idea of the United Nations with the hopes that the UN would become more than just a strengthened League of Nations. And you're right, after, after the United Nations was founded, there actually was some disappointment. They really believed that they could take it and notch this thing up a few levels and actually have it become a, a, an effective and more authoritative form of world government. But when, when many of us uh, think about one world government, we think about groups like the Bilderbergs or the Trilateral Commission or the Council on Foreign Relations or these unelected oligarchs, these super elites working behind the scenes uh, to bring about sort of one world, sort of a corpocracy. Uh, we don't think of the world federalist movement. This sounds like a fairly innocuous bunch. I think they number, as I said, between 30 and 50,000 members worldwide. Uh, you know, I'm not thinking that these are a group necessarily to be feared, or am I wrong? Well, I don't actually really believe they are to be feared, per se. I believe they should really be understood more than they should be feared, because when you understand the process and the philosophy and the goals of world federalism, then you at least have something to work with, even if you are opposed to the idea, which I am, as you are as well with your earlier statement. Uh, but what makes them interesting is that they are not a secretive group. And in this sense, they're not a conspiracy. They are, rather, a movement, which is what their name implies. And so it's actually a membership-run organization. It seeks out public acceptance and public membership to help build up uh, political pressure, leverage within cultures and societies towards this idea of world federalism and world government. And so they are unique, Richard, in that sense. It's not like the Bilderbergers that hide behind closed doors and, and guards. Uh, they are a much more open organization. They are a non-profit organization. They do put uh, tax uh, reports out. They have annual reports that they have to file. Uh, their statements and goals and intents is known. It's open. And in that sense, that, that, that sets them apart. But the other thing it does is it almost makes them benign-sounding. It, um, it makes it so that you end up actually looking right past them, thinking that, well, this group cannot have the clout or the influence that it hopes to have for the goals it seeks to achieve, because, after all, it's out in the open. They are, in a sense, what H.G. Wells would have called the open conspiracy. Well, let's talk about some of their, their goals or their objectives. What, how do they see One World Government operating? They see One World Government coming about as a democratically elected, federated form of government. 
Now, I mean, that sounds great. That sounds wonderful on the surface. But democracy does not necessarily guarantee freedom or security. It does not necessarily guarantee liberty. Democracy can be overrun. It can be leveraged and used. Hitler, who despised democracy, leveraged it phenomenally well when he came to power. He boasts about it in his, in his speeches. Uh, democracy itself is not necessarily a safeguard, and yet that is what they see as being a potential safeguard to hopefully keep a world government from becoming too dictatorial or tyrannical. Uh, the other side of this is they see it as being federated, having a constitution, very specific powers, and, and uh, uh, delegated authorities. And yet even that too, Richard, does not necessarily give you a guarantee of freedom or liberty. Indeed, if you want freedom or liberty, you end up having to look at a much uh, smaller scale Freedom and liberty typically does not come about through massive, potentially massive bureaucratic systems and regimes of management, which a world government, even though it may have delineated powers in the very beginning, runs a real risk of becoming far more uh, monstrous, far larger than originally intended by these people. And by the way, I actually, I, I know a number of federalists, and most of them that I've ran into, uh, their intentions are good. They see, they see world government as being the solution to, to global crisis and to conflict. And, and they view this as being a step towards world peace. And yet at the same time, you may have great intentions, but the road to hell truly is paved with good intentions. Well, as I always say to, to proponents of uh, a, a, such a system, a world federalist, uh, a form of government or what have you, uh, people that uh, think you know that that, that nationalism uh, is 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 part of the is at the root of the world's problems. Uh, that I say, well, think about how unresponsive your government is in Ottawa, exactly. uh, or in if you're you know your provincial capital. Uh, now now think what it would be like if uh, your your government representative was in the Hague or wherever they where where would the uh, the world capital be? By the way, well. That's something that has been talked about to some extent. And just simply, some of the ideas have come about. One of them is this idea of let's create a United Nations parliamentary assembly. Literally create an electable parliament that would fit hand in glove with the United Nations. If that was the case, if they did bring that about, and by the way, this is one of their major platforms, one of their major goals, then it would likely be located at the United Nations. They also recognize uh, that... It could be located at, at New York or potentially even Geneva, but more than likely uh, at the United Nations headquarters. They all have also floated the idea of maybe attaching this world parliament to the World Trade Organization or have it stand alone as a voluntary organization, almost acting in the capacity of, uh, of a consultative group. And so when the next global crisis comes about, and the world is in a state of fear and is in a state of despair, the world federalist community can then wave their banner and say, look, we already have the structure of a world government in operation. It's only a volunteer consultative type of, of structure at this point, but now it can become something more. Let's put the structures in place now so that when the crisis comes, we have the ability to have a world government in place after the crisis is over. That's the thinking behind this, Richard. Carl Tigrib is uh, with us, the editor at uh, Forcing Change. Very quickly, what is Forcing Change? Tell us about it, Carl. Well, ForcingChange.org is a monthly publication that documents 
analyzes and details the changing structures of our politics, our economics, and our social, religious, cultural times. And so what we do is every month, we dig into what's taking place in terms of, of internationalism, federalism, globalization. We take a look at religion, interfaithism, the environmental movement, all of these interlocking areas, including economics. Now, I'll be frank, my, my worldview, my biases, so to speak, are pretty straightforward. I embrace a Christian worldview. I'm pro-liberty versus politically imposed equality. I'm pro-individualistic versus consensus collectivism. And I'm pro-free market, which is a volunteer and consensual exchange of goods and services. That's basically the roots of, of where I'm coming from. And so we have other authors that, that write for us. And um, our material is, is extensively documented. I look at this as more of an educational an educational publication than it is anything else. It's right. not opinion-based. We'll, uh, we'll find out uh, how people can, can uh, log on to Forcing Change in a moment. Carl Teichrup, Chief Editor at Forcing Change, and we'll talk more about the World Federalist Movement when The Conspiracy Show returns in a moment. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Well, if one were to draw their own conclusion, I think one would ultimately conclude that we are marching inexorably towards uh, a one-world style of government, incrementally, uh, almost imperceptibly. Uh, in fact, you might even make an argument that we're already there, that the, the nation-state with its flags and its anthems and its institutions, it's all mere window dressing, but uh, in reality, uh, we all are, are already living in a, uh, in a in one-world uh, style government. Uh, Carl Teichrib is here, chief editor at Forcing Change, Making Sense of Our Changing World. And uh, uh, the website there is www.forcingchange.org. And uh, how does this work? Now, you can sign up for a semi-annual membership, quarterly membership, monthly membership. Is this to access the articles? Because you do have free articles on the site, uh, Carl. How does that work? That's right. You can go onto the site and just grab what's free, and I, I encourage people to do so. The membership actually allows you to go into six years of back issues and to receive the new issue as it comes out every month. Uh, and so the issues are between 15, 18, and sometimes 45 pages in length. And uh, people who actually join up, get a membership, will have access to all six years, as, as stated, but then also special reports, various audio files, and a, a whole host of other materials that will help you to better understand so many of these different aspects that fit into what we know as globalization. How do you feel about what I, what I was just saying, that, that, that uh, we are already there, we just don't realize it. We already have essentially one world government, uh, or are certainly further down that road than many of us even realize. Oh, you're absolutely right. Strobe Talbot said this basically, I think he said this in 1991, uh, that, that we basically are in this type of a system already. Uh, I remember being at a, a joint World Federalist meeting with a number of other uh, groups back in the, in the late 1990s, where at that point in time, the, the head of the Chicago branch of the World Federalist Movement was very adamant, we are in a form of world government right now. It's just that we don't have the structures in the place, uh, the structures in place to move it along in the way that we view it as what it would should, as what it should look like. But with the World Trade Organization, with the IMF, 
uh, with the Bank for International Settlements, with all these other uh, institutions and entities in place that already build up a regulatory, uh, almost a, a standardization of how the world interacts with each other, we already have an embryonic form of world government that is already in play. Do you think that m- many of these uh, regional wars, let's take, for example, what was called or labeled by the mainstream media, I think incorrectly, but they called it the, you know, the Arab Spring. Uh, and I, 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 I believe that what happened in places like uh, uh, um, uh, Libya, now Syria, in in Morocco, Egypt. It wasn't uh, sort of a grassroots revolution. These regimes were targeted by the West, NATO, the Anglo-American establishment perhaps. These countries were targeted for regime change because they wouldn't play ball. Hosni Mubarak was no longer of use to the West and so forth. So that's that's what these wars are about. Those countries that are not interested in one world government, they want to go at it alone, they don't want a central bank, they don't want an IMF. Is that what what this is about? Um, Maybe, maybe to some point. I I believe it's probably more complex than that. Uh, What's interesting is that part of the world has its own different version of what the the world system would look like. And that's one thing that I have noted when I have been at various United Nations and other global governance events, that there is a competition, you could say, between ideologies, philosophies, and worldviews, depending on what part of the world you're from, depending on, on the cultural background, regarding what a world government would ultimately look like, how it would be, how it would be arranged, or how it would operate, and what form of ethics would it be based on, all these different ideas. And I, I've actually been in different, different events where, where everybody was in basically an agreement, they want a world government, but three hours of intense arguing over over what route to take really left myself at least uh, absolutely scratching my head going well you, you don't come together in terms of unity uh, you all have your own agendas your own egos a lot of egos and uh, I found that to be quite fascinating and I experienced that actually at the United Nations Millennium Forum when I attended the working session on uh, on developing new inter- international institutions and the time that, uh, that we spent talking about a United Nations, um, a UN-based world parliament, I really saw this, this, you could say, this competition over who's going to have the ultimate say over how it would be shaped. Uh, it really, really erupt into lots of, of arguing and uh, raised voices, and it was actually quite interesting to watch. Now, what would the structure of the government be? Would, be, would there be, a, for example, a world a president, a world, uh, a, a, like a cabinet, uh, cabinet positions, or uh, how would it work, it, it, the structure? According, according to the World Federalists, it would be very similar to how the United States government is set up at this point in time. Uh, so you would have an executive branch, you'd have a judicial branch, which already is in the process of being put into play, the International Criminal Court, and here's actually, Richard, where things get interesting. Uh, we could take a look at the World Federalist Movement and say, um, it's a sideline organization, it doesn't have huge clout. You know, some of their successes have been remarkable. The International Criminal Court would not exist today, by and large would not exist at all, if it wasn't for the tireless work and energy that the entire World Federalist community put into lobbying for it, pressuring for it, 
networking with governments and with civil society organizations in a tremendous way. The backstory to the ICC is incredible, and it all circulates around the, the influence and the pressure put on by the World Federalist community. So, yeah, they recognize that if we're going to have a system of world government based on the American style of, of federalism, you need world law. You need a judicial system, and you need an executive branch. What would happen then to the nation-state? I mean, would we still have a Canadian federal government, but over top of that, we would have this, this other layer of government? Yes, absolutely. In fact, that's, that's been discussed quite a bit. Uh, different events have been to. It has been described in the sense that we already have, uh, we already have county or municipal government. We already have city government. We have provincial government. We have federal government. Let's add maybe another layer, regional government. And uh, beyond that, add the final layer, which would be a type of international system. And uh, another level, level of taxation, no doubt. And actually, that's been quite discussed. Yes, in fact, the Canadian, <laughs> we should be, uh, I, I want to say this tongue-in-cheek, proud Canadians. In 1999, uh, we passed in the House of Commons the Tobin tax idea, which essentially says that when a world tax comes into play, based around the idea of international financial transaction uh, taxes, Canada is the first one to step to the plate and play ball and, ha- and, and enforce an international currency tax. Uh, you know, Richard, this is stuff that we've been talking about for a long, long time. It's not something that just happened overnight. This is the accumulation of a lot of very big ideas. Oh, of course, these things are always at least 50 years uh, uh, in the planning, I'm guessing. Yes. Carl oh, Teichrib yeah. is with us, chief editor at Force and Change, and we're talking about the World Federalist Movement. So would there be, uh, for example, uh, let's let's assume that the, the term of this world president would be, I don't know, four years or maybe along the French system, seven years. So would there be this election cycle every four or seven years and primaries and, and different parties? And how would that work? Uh, and that's also being discussed within the World Federalist community. In fact, a few, a few reports have come out in the last couple of years looking at some of the different options, and it's all been, all been debated, all been hashed through weighted voting systems based on, on the percentage of uh, your, gross, uh, your gross national product uh, with the amount of people that are in your nation, with a whole, a whole series of formulas put together to potentially be used in, in creating a system of electable uh, members to this type of a world parliament. Uh, and so, yeah, the formulas already have been, have been well hashed out, well worked through. In, in the World Federalist community, they still debate it to some extent how this would look. But, I mean, yeah, this has actually been thought through. This is, this is not fly-by-night stuff. Uh, they are quite serious regarding the idea of creating a United Nations-based world parliament. And would, would, a, would a nation be allowed to have its own standing army, for example? Well, it depends how far this goes. Uh, in, certain, in certain projections, the idea is that nations should only retain enough of a military force that they can deal with their own internal problems. Others say that... Well, that's interesting. Its own internal problems. Yes. Uh, in, in other words, using an army against its own citizens. Yes. Yes. Hmm. To have its own military force uh, so that they could in, impose law and order within their own boundaries and enough to contribute to an international military force if needed. 
And who would decide where that international force would be deployed and against what other jurisdiction? Oh, well, Richard, now we're coming up against another big idea from the World Federalist Community, and that is the responsibility to protect doctrine, which the United Nations in 2005 uh, laid out essentially as the doctrine that they look to impose now when it comes to international conflict. Responsibility to protect is a big idea. Uh, it's the doctrine that says that if a nation state is incapable of, of securing the peace and order of its own citizens or actually goes against its own citizenry in the case of, let's say, Libya or Syria, where your own... Or Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. True, yes then it is the responsibility of the global community to intervene militarily and bring order and peace back to that nation-state through the use of, of military forces. Now, Well, we have that now. I think Tony Blair labeled it the humanitarian doctrine, and we see how that's being utilized in places like Libya and Syria. Well, and, and that, of course, is the irony here with this discussion. Last year's Libyan uh, incursion through NATO and the United Nations, was all couched in the responsibility to protect doctrine, which came about through the World Federalist Community and primarily uh, through Lloyd Axworthy and his work when he was the Minister of Foreign Affairs and then the Ambassador to the United Nations, uh, which actually is quite uh, an interesting little side to this whole thing. This summer I attended the 26th International Congress of the World Federalist Movement, the International Congress meets every four to five years. And it was held in Winnipeg. Now, it's always held in a world city, places like Tokyo, uh, Oslo, New York, Washington, uh, London. Why Winnipeg? I mean, a Winnipeg? Really? <laughs> Not Toronto? I, I would think if you would have a Canadian world city, it would be Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver. But Winnipeg? And so, as a Canadian, uh, immediately the question pops up, why? Why in Manitoba? And the answer is quite simple. It's not necessarily uh, what Winnipeg is or is not. It is who is in Winnipeg. And it's Lloyd Axworthy. Former Liberal Cabinet Minister under uh, Trudeau and Chrétien. That's right. And Lloyd Axworthy is the international president of the World Federalist Movement. Interesting, interesting. Well, you know, it, um, I'm wondering to what extent the World Federalist Movement is, uh, you said it's kind of an open conspiracy. They're very open, they're very public, but in, you know, behind the scenes, we know that there are these other groups, I mentioned the Bilderbergs and the Council on Foreign Relations, that have similar objectives. I'm wondering then if the World Federalist Movement is not a psyop, but it's being put out there just to sort of test the waters on behalf of these more secretive groups, just to test the water and, and take the temperature of the, uh, the hoi polloi, if you will. Hmm, interesting. You may have something there. I, I do know that the World Federalist Community has found that one of the largest ways of bringing about success is to, is to rally around the idea of coalitions. They, they really work together with other like-minded organizations, and even organizations, Richard, that you kind of scratch your head and go, well, why are you in bed with this group? And so they really, really network well within the civil society community. Let's find out who some of those strange, uh, some of those strange bedfellows are with the World Federalist Movement. When we come back, Carl Teichrib is with us, chief editor of Forcing Change, Making Sense of Our Changing World. Are we marching towards 
a one-world government? And if you'd like to weigh in, what do you think of the World Federalist Movement? Maybe it's utopia to you. Not to me, but you tell me. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. As we discuss the World Federalist Movement, uh, Carl Teichrib is with us, Chief Editor at Forcing Change. A couple of years ago, Carl, I was in a, a documentary, interviewed for a documentary called United We Fall, and it was about the, uh, the North American Union that supposedly is being developed right now between Canada and the United States uh, that would essentially uh, erase... The, the borders between the U.S. and Canada and Mexico and the U.S. and create one big trading block similar to the European Union. And in, in that documentary, uh, another former liberal, uh, you, men- you mentioned Lloyd Axworthy uh, in Winnipeg, but another federal uh, former liberal uh, cabinet member, John Manley, who also ran for the leadership, was, was interviewed. And he essentially said that it's, it's now uh, time to start thinking about getting rid of national sovereignty, uh, that it's kind of an antiquated idea, which, fair enough, okay, that's coming from, uh, you know, a liberal. Uh, they tend to be a little more global, I guess, in, th- in their thinking. But then we even have what is ast- who is ostensibly conservative, although I have my serious doubts, uh, uh, Stephen Harper, our prime minister, and other world leaders now starting to use words like enlightened sovereignty, which, again, tends to suggest that uh, they've already drank the Kool-Aid. They, they've already bought into this idea of a world federalist form of government. What are your thoughts? Oh, wow, Richard. Canada, actually, as a nation, we've been on the forefront of the world federalist movement for quite some time, primarily through our governmental leadership levels. Uh, the Canadian branch of the world federalist movement is much smaller than some of the other branches, particularly the U.S. branch. But historically, it has actually played a, a fairly significant role in the idea of, of forming the ideology around globalism. And it seems that Canadian politicians, for quite some time, actually going right back to World War II, have been enamored with this idea to some extent. Uh, Lester Pearson, Lester Pearson, I don't know if he was a Federalist, but I know that he spoke at Federalist events, and he did definitely come out with, with public uh, acceptance, and, and with encouragement towards the idea of world federalism, uh, Baker apparently had uh, deep connections with the world federalist community. The, the list of Canadians who are involved in it or have had some type of association with the world federalist uh, community is, is quite extensive. And even at this particular event I attended, Bill Blakey was there, former, former uh, Speaker of the House of Commons. And Premier of, uh, was he Premier of Saskatchewan? Or that's another Blake, uh, no, that's Alan uh, Blakeney, sorry. That's right, right. that's right. Sorry. And uh, Bill Blakey was, was here as a, I didn't know this until I showed up for the event, and, and there he is, he, he's a full-fledged member, and he believes that world federal government is the way to go as well. Uh, Is there so something illegal a about at, at work here in our, in our Canadian political system? Isn't there something I don't know, not illegal necessarily, but something duplicitous about our elected members attending a conference like that? That the chief aim of which is to surrender much of our sovereignty. I mean, it's not exactly like the Logan's the Logan Act in the U.S. that people often bring up when we were talking about senators and presidents attending the Bilderberg meetings. But to me, there's something somewhat 
traitorous about that. Well, it's interesting. The new Democrat Party actually has, has a lot of sympathies with the World Federalist Movement and the World Federalist Community. Uh, actually, the, the NDP has, has broached some of these same topics. And, and when we, we saw the introduction of the Tobin tax idea in 1998, and then it passed in 1999 in the House of Commons. It was, it came up through the NDP community. Uh, the NDP, if you take a look at, at their, at their perspective on the creation of a world, a parliamentary assembly, a world parliament, they're all in favor of it. They believe that that's the way to go. So we already have a very deeply enmeshed Canadian political culture that even if they may not be members of these organizations, they already are certainly uh, in lockstep with the idea of, of globalization and a decrease of our national sovereignty. We seem very eager to throw our national sovereignty out the window or under the bus. This is something that's always troubled me about our Canadian system. We have this, this uh, in my view, an erroneous mentality of what sovereignty is all about. And we are, we are, very, uh, we are very quick, we are very quick to, to sidestep it and to seek something more. And part of it comes through this idea that we are an international country. We're a country that has played a very major role in international institutions, including the United Nations, NATO, and we're very proud of the UN peacekeeping service idea, which came about through Lester Pearson and the use of a crisis, which Pearson actually was very, very open about, the, the idea that now we have an international crisis and this is a time when everyone is so frightened of what might happen that they'll accept anything, even things that they wouldn't accept a week afterwards. All right, the time let's... to move is now. So, okay. you know, Richard, we already have a Canadian political culture that for some reason has this idea of let's gravitate towards the international. All right, uh, we'll be back and we'll uh, open up the phone lines. We'll get to, uh, to your calls in a minute as well. If you've got a line, hold on to it. Back with more of my conversation with Carl Teichrup, Chief Editor at Forcing Change, as we discuss the World Federalist Movement. For it or again it? The Conspiracy Show. Back with more in a moment. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Carl Teichrib is with us, Forcing Change. We're talking about the World Federalist Movement. Are we marching towards one world government? Maybe we may already be there. And what do you think of the idea? Uh, is the nation-state antiquated? Uh, is this the only way that we can avoid uh, these seemingly endless rounds of, of regional wars and world war war world war? Uh, world wars. <laughs> uh, that's a, a tough one at uh, 11.45 to get my tongue around. Anyway, um, we'll, uh, we'll uh, pick it up here with Richard in Hamilton. Richard, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good evening, uh, gentlemen. I have, I have a, a question and a comment, uh, if you can take them. Go ahead. Um, first off, uh, the, uh, the question is, uh, what checks and balances will be put in place to prevent uh, somebody who's elected as world leader from hijacking and becoming something like another Adolf Hitler. Excellent point. Carl, do they have that one figured out? Well, and this is where things get a little bit murky. Uh, the idea here that is always put forward is that democracy and federalism will be those checks and balances, that there will be uh, an elected body, that there will be an executive body, a judicial body, uh, that there will be a system of world law, that all these basic structures will be put in place and that they will become 
the system of checks and balances in the same sense that the United States has a system of checks and balances. Uh, but your caller is right. The, something like this requires, uh, well, number one, I don't want something like this to even exist. Uh, there are too many problems that, run into, that you run into with this. But those checks and balances of democracy and federalism, in my mind, are simply something that will not work. Power begets power. Uh, this is something that, that could easily be superseded by somebody or some organization, assuming we already are looking at, at, at good motives to begin with. Well, we've already seen in the United States that uh, the executive branch routinely routinely bypasses the legislative branch in declaring war, for example, in, in, in Libya. That, that action was certainly unconstitutional. Um, I, mean, I can't remember the last time the president went to Congress and asked uh, you know, permission to, to declare war. It just doesn't happen. Uh, and here in Canada, of course, we have the notwithstanding clause. So we have the parliament regular, not regularly, but they have the power to, to, uh, to overrule the judiciary. Uh, so these checks and balances, I, I don't think, um, uh, are proven to, uh, to work or are, are certainly not very effective. No, you're, and you're right. We, we already have these checks and balances all messed up at the, at the national level, even at the local level sometimes. And we're expecting that this is going to become the, the band-aid that cures the world's ills. I have a sneaking suspicion, and actually, Richard, more than a sneaking suspicion, that it's actually going to rip open the wounds a whole lot deeper. And, and that really is, is, is problematic. Uh, Hello? It's very yeah, weak, yeah, okay. democracy. Uh, all right, Richard, you had one quick comment, and then I have to move on. Go ahead, Richard. Okay, a uh, quick comment is... To Back at the, in the late 19th and early 20th century, an American politician said that the, the stars and stripes will fly from, uh, from the Caribbean all the way up to the Arctic uh, Ocean. And uh, it seems like you mentioned about the, uh, you. Whoops, sorry. We, we lost Richard. I'm not sure how he dropped off the line there. I hope I didn't do that. Uh, Richard. My apologies if you're uh, if you're still listening. Uh, Carl is in Washington State. Carl, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. You're on the line with Carl Tykrip. Yeah, I bet I'm the furthest call you've ever gotten. Huh? Uh, you actually, you're pretty close. We have had a call from Japan, uh, Carl, on, on occasion. But uh, welcome aboard, nonetheless. Good to have you. Uh, thank you. I'm listening to you on iTunes, by the way. Terrific. Thank you. Uh, I would like to know what your guest, or if your guest, ever heard that. Before the 2008 presidential election in the United States, Obama and Hillary Clinton were taken to a meeting, a secret meeting of the Bilderbergers, and that that was when they decided that Obama was going to be the next president. All right. We actually discussed that a couple of weeks ago on the program with uh, Mark um, Mark Dice uh, talking about the Bilderbergs, and apparently Clinton... Uh, was uh, whisked off a, uh, a campaign um, a tour uh, and taken to this meeting in in Virginia. It was a Bilderberg meeting, supposedly. Who knows? But, uh, oh, Carl, did you want to weigh in on that? I really don't have anything extra to add to what you, what you just said there, Richard. Uh, if I would add one thing about the 2008 uh, transition from, from Bush to Obama is that I, I know of at least one world federalist who was brought in as a world federalist to, to help with the transition team develop ideas and policy direction uh, for, for, their, for their international affairs uh, concepts. So I, I already realized that the World Federalist community at, at one point 
during the transition period did have some influence in developing American foreign policy, or at least helping to work through ideas of American foreign policy. Uh, Rose is in Guelph. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show, Rose. Let's have a quick comment. I'm very against this because when we actually hear about the President of the United States, they actually refer to him as the President of the Free World. And that's always gotten my goat because guess what? He's not the President of the World, free or otherwise. But I see this just as another way for Americans to take over everything, including our natural resources. I'm very against it. Appreciate the call, Rose. Yeah, that's an interesting statement. Uh, yes, this is viewed as being an American, an American system per se, but it's more than that. There's actually a, a very strong European branch of the, of the Federalist community, and the World Federalists were very involved in helping formulate the philosophies and ideas of European Union. In fact, there's a whole separate branch of the World Federalist community that has worked within the European Communion. Um, and in some senses, for quite some time, there actually was some competition between both sides of, 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 of the Atlantic. Uh, nonetheless, they do work in cooperation today. Uh, and again, something else that's kind of an interesting side note, in the past, the European Union has actually contributed a fair amount of money to the World Federalist Movement. What would, uh, what would happen to um, uh, currency? Would we have one world, uh, a one-world cur- currency? Well, that has been discussed, that has been talked about. Uh, at the 25th uh, Congress of the World Federalist Movement, they did put down a position paper uh, openly advocating and endorsing the creation of a single global currency. When I was uh, involved with this particular event in Winnipeg, they were looking at retracting that and did retract it to some extent because they didn't see this as being politically feasible at this point in time but it, it was retracted with the idea that there will come a point in time when we may need to look at it again and include that type of language. But the banking industry, the banking community, has, has certainly been discussing this to some extent. In fact, I would suggest pe- people go to our website, and then from there you can find a, uh, a WordPress blog link. Um, and check out the, the Forcing Change blog as well. Go through the, the archives, and we have a fairly extensive... Uh, essay that we did on the creation of a single global currency and it was received well enough that it actually ended up getting reprinted in a uh, an Indian based publication titled simply a single global currency perspectives and challenges uh, now do they foresee this happening this world federalist form of government happening incrementally so for example we have the European Union now, perhaps the next stage would be some sort of a, a pan-Asian union, a pan-African union, which is supposedly already in the works. Then we would have the North American union, uh, and then they would gradually just merge those four or five major blocks together. Yeah, that, that definitely is something that they have been discussing and thinking about. The World Federalist community at this point, from what I see, are fairly opportunistic. Uh, one of the working sessions that I was sitting in, we took a look at four different ways towards world government, including what you just discussed, Richard, regionalism. And it was suggested that all four ways, including United Nations empowerment, uh, the creation of a, a global constitution that would be immediately implemented, let's say, through a, uh, a crisis situation, literally ground to sky world government overnight. Uh, these, and I believe there was one other, one other pathway to world government, these were all different venues that they recognized as being viable, viable paths towards the mountaintop 
of, of world and international uh, management. All right, let's uh, grab uh, James in Toronto. Uh, welcome to the Conspiracy Show, James. Yes, this one world government will not only eliminate all suffering, but all death that is promised in the Garden of Eden. All right, that's Arthur checking in under an alias <laughs> with his uh, regular uh, reference to Scripture. Michael is in Hamilton. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show, Michael. Hello. Hi there. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. I just uh, wanted to, to mention a couple of things here that are opinion, and, and I'm concerned, and, and I'm sort of not asking a question, but I'm throwing some information out, and perhaps you and your guests could... could okay. If you can do it in, in about 30 seconds, we'd appreciate it, Michael, because yeah. we're tight for time. Well, anyway, first of all, anything that is not Canadian that governs me scares me. Uh, this is the greatest country in the world. And, you know, you talk about American influences and everything, and you're talking about 47 million people that are on food stamps right now, and you've got so many countries that are not doing as well as we are. There's got to be something that will come from that that will mean take from our resources. And then, again, you've got the other issue of what is democracy. Everybody has their own opinion of what is democracy, what is freedom. I like this the way it is, and it scares me to think that someone else would have influence on us telling us what it is. Appreciate the call, Michael. Good points. Thank you. Uh, Carl, did you want to respond to that? I agree with that. I right. totally agree with that. Although, uh, Canada, the great, greatest country, no argument there, but based on what you're saying, Carl, it sounds like our own, our own leaders, uh, are, um, are buying into this and, and that the Canadian contingent of the World Federalist Movement has a great deal of power and influence. Well, their power and influence has, has, has waned and, and grown over time. Uh, it's ebbed and flowed. Nonetheless, the culture, the cultural mindset, has, has certainly already been well ingrained within our Canadian political system. I mean, even going back to Tommy Douglas, who was a world federalist, uh, you, you see this type of thinking permeating Canadian political culture. But how can uh, a political leader um, swear allegiance to the, uh, the crown, the queen, the flag uh, in the United States, um, and then at the same time, it's like they're crossing their fingers behind their back because they have an allegiance to this utopian one-world government. That, to me, again, is duplicitous and treasonous. Well, and the U.S. State Department uh, has actually a lot of Federalist connections and a lot of Federalist ties, going all the way back to World War II, going all the way back into the creation of the United Nations itself. The World Federalist Community and the State Department did work very tightly uh, throughout that process. Are these, are these individuals wringing their hands at the prospects of, let's say, a war with Iran, because that might be the catalyst that finally brings the world uh, into buying into this? Well, and here lies a bitter irony. Uh, When I was at this event, there was a lot of talk of the need for world peace. So that always is that goal, the, the carrot that's put out there. At the same time, they recognize that crisis is what will bring this about. And so they recognize that as the League of Nations was formed through World War One, the United Nations through World War Two, some type of an international government must be created after the ashes of the next global crisis. And they recognize, too, that it could even be an economic crisis, something that would bring the world to its knees. Even if they have to manufacture that crisis or their their coalition groups have to manufacture that crisis to bring it about. Listen, we're out of time, Carl. Really appreciate your time. Again, the website, forcingchange.org. Correct. And it's been good to be with you again, Richard. Thanks, Carl. And if you'd like to know what's going on in this program, upcoming shows, past shows, you can log on to richardserrett.com.